listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Okay, before we go any further, I want to address those of you, and I know you're out there, who skip over the intro, who fast forward through the intro to get right to the interview. I know you're out there. I know you do it. I do it myself on other people's podcasts, but I'm telling you, I don't want you to do it today. Stick with me. It's going to be a short intro. I know it's a fairly long conversation, so I'm going to cut to the chase, but I've got something I want to share with you, and it's related to the interview. It all holds together. Um, It may take me a minute, but just don't fast forward me, all right? Welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're with me. Today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation I have with an author named John Tucker. And John has written a book called Zero Theology, Escaping Belief Through Catch-22s. And you may think that when John says escaping belief, that this book is all about how to get out of Christianity or Islam or whatever supernatural mindset you're in. It's kind of that, but kind of not. It's, I read the book, but I only read it because it was recommended to me by two people, three people really, that I very much respect, but two people on very opposite ends of the spectrum. One was Dan Dennett. Um, my friend Linda Lascola sent me a little note from her friend Dan Dennett, um, who's one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, and he's, he's a big deal guy, he's a philosopher. If you haven't ever listened to his TED Talk, um, I will put a link to it because he has this TED Talk, which starts out with a picture of an ant on a piece of grass that is one of the best little chunks of thinking I've heard in a long time. But anyway, Dan Dennett, says, hey, this is an important book. And then I get another quote from Brian McLaren, who's actually a friend of mine. And he says, this is a really great book. And and Brian McLaren's one of those still Christian guys who's ultra progressive, who was, by the way, hugely influential in my own deconversion. One of the first people that sort of showed me my way out of evangelicalism and it, and it sort of started me, put me on the slippery slope, as it were. And uh, eventually I, I sledded right past him all the way out the door. But I still am tight with Brian. One of these days I really should get him on the on the show. He's just a one of the most brilliant and kind people I've ever known. Just a, a unique combination of intelligence and compassion. Um, but when when people who think so differently about all this God stuff... Uh, are both enamored of a book. I, I check it out. So I read the book and you're going to hear in this conversation, I like I got some issues with it, but gosh, I like this guy and we had a great conversation and I'm going to share it. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a joke that is related because it, and it comes from the movie Annie Hall and the Woody Allen character at the beginning of that movie um, he's talking to somebody. He says, look, it reminds me of that old joke. You know, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and says, hey, doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. Then the doc says, well, why don't you bring him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. And I tell that joke because the other day I got a call from a buddy of mine in the post-Christian, post-Mormon, post-everything world. 
And he said that a friend of his who had been a really hardcore Mormon and who he and his whole family had deconverted and they came out of it, said he was in real trouble. He had sunk into alcoholism and depression. And as he was describing it to me and sort of saying, like, I'm not quite sure what to do with this guy, for this guy, he said, you know, he's one of those guys who probably needed to stay in. Um, he never ever found his feet on the outside of that community. Mormonism structured his life and it gave him a sense of purpose and meaning and it gave him a community. And he, and he said, not everybody's able to recreate that for themselves on the other side. And, and this guy really never recovered. He needed the eggs. And uh, I always think that when I'm talking to people who, like the street epistemology people, people who like to sort of sow seeds of, of doubt in other people's faith. And, 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 you know, I think there's a time and a place for that. But I think when people just stop somebody on the street or just find somebody and, and, and willy-nilly challenge their faith, I always think, wait a second. I'm not saying their faith makes any sense or it's rational, but maybe they need the eggs. Maybe they need the community. I mean, before you blow up somebody's worldview, you probably ought to ask yourself, can you replace everything that worldview gives them access to? And if you can't, are you sure they can handle the loss? Because not everybody can. Uh, lately, I've been talking a lot about worldview humility, which on one level is just purely rational. None of us know for sure. I mean, you can't prove for a fact that we're not all living in a computer simulation or that you're not in a computer simulation and all the rest of us are robots. We don't know for sure. We take a lot of things on faith because the scientific community tells us or because our parents told us. And people believe what they believe for reasons. And I think it's really important sometimes, even when you're when you're vying with somebody over a piece of truth to say, listen, I, I don't know for sure. You know, this is my best, this is my best explanation. That's what science offers us, good explanations. But I think a certain kind of worldview humility enables you to stay in the conversation. But the other kind of worldview humility I think you have to have is to understand that some worldviews come packaged with a whole lifestyle and a whole community infrastructure that some people grow up in and they need. And it keeps them connected to their families and it keeps them connected to, to their sense of confidence that life has meaning. And you may not buy into that and you may not need what they need, but I think it's we gotta also have the kind of worldview humility that says, I'm not like everybody else and everybody else isn't like me. And I better be careful before I make decisions on behalf of other people about what they do and don't need. You say, gosh, Bart, why are you saying that now? It's almost as if we're heading into the holidays and you're sort of preparing us to be, yeah, that's right. That's right. There's some stuff to think about when you're getting ready for the holidays. In our caravan local community here in Cincinnati, next uh, uh, two weeks from now, we're doing a, a Sunday gathering and it's all about home for the holidays. It's all about how to navigate 
as a good humanist, as a loving person, as a person committed to all these values that we share? How do you, how do you show up prepared and try to make the most of holidays with people that may make it very hard for you or that you may make it very hard for them? So we'll be talking about that in Caravan. And in fact, I, I will steer you. I'm not going to do a podcast about it. I think we've already done a few and we'll do a few more, but I don't think we have room in the queue for this this year for this one. But I will, I will steer you towards the Caravan site where we do that whole thing because we record the, the good talks and we'll, we'll make sure to have this information available to you. But uh, in the meantime, all I'm saying is, you know, when you look at somebody else and you think they're crazy, and be sure you check and see if, if, if either they or somebody right close to them needs the eggs. All right. Speaking of people that need the eggs, I want you to, I want you to meet John Tucker. This guy who I wrote this book and I'm telling you, it's unlike any book I've ever read, which I guess every book technically is, but this is a completely different approach to theology. And if you're thinking, why are we even messing with theology on this podcast? Listen to the conversation. You're going to find out. You're going to find out. This guy is relevant to us. All right. And I like him and I like talking to him. And I hope you like listening to us talk. So here it is, me and John Tucker chopping it up on Humanize Me. So John, thank you for coming to talk with me. Thank you for having me. You, you know, it's it's funny. I seldom talk to somebody on this podcast that I haven't had some interaction with elsewhere. Right. But but in this case, I just kept getting contacted by people that I like and respect <laughs> telling me I should talk with you. Well, that makes me feel about, good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, Dan Dennett, who I would be lying if I said we were friends, like right. we were in a room once, you know, we shook hands. We're not friends. Right. But I, I, I've read and watched a lot of his work and I think very highly of him. Right. Absolutely. As do I. On the one hand. And he's like one of the four horsemen of the, you know, atheist apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> and, and on the other hand, I got a call from my friend, Brian McLaren. Oh, okay. The, 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 and you say, well, like, why did you need so much convincing? And the answer is because the book that they wanted me to check out was a book called Zero Theology. Right. Yeah. And the theology and, stuck, and out, and stuck out more than the zero. <laughs> it, it, it did. And, and the thing is, you got to understand when you, like, when you are a publicly deconverted evangelical Christian platform speaker, right? you get thousands of emails and calls from people saying, please read this book. It's really going to help you. Like oh, right. here are five verses that you haven't heard. <laughs> like right. everybody's trying to like show me a form of Christianity right. that I can buy back into. Yes. Convert you back in. There you go. <laughs> That's right. And so e even though it said zero, I was like, yeah, but I wish, you know, I'm yeah. not sure. Um, <laughs> There's some ulterior. <laughs> so, so, but the weird thing is, uh, you have a background that I sense is not dissimilar from my own. I think that is accurate. I uh, first Up of all, to a point. let me say I uh, I live in Oregon, but I am from Alabama, so the accent that's what you're hearing, and I don't think you can uh, probably can't take that out. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I was raised uh, in Alabama, Southern Baptist. Uh, uh, I would say literalist environment more than I would say fundamentalist. Um, and went to uh, Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and took a was a religion and philosophy major. And uh, I, I went in a, a naive literalist, and I came out a philosophical atheist. And it all happened thanks to that good old Southern Baptist College. So, <laughs> wow! <laughs> so. My, my 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 high school girlfriend went to Samford. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And, and she did not come out a philosophical atheist. <laughs> Um, well, most do not. I, I don't I think that's what I don't think that's what Samford's selling. To be honest with you, I've no, I don't think it's in their times. catalog. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great experience, and I will say it was uh, it was perfect for where I was at the time, and uh, I got a really solid education. And uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I I, I I was convinced while I was there, probably maybe in similar ways to you. It was a, it was a combination of of philosophy, which I. I did not realize that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to think philosophically until I was exposed to it. And also uh, critical studying of, of the Bible. And those two things were a pretty significant one-two punch that knocked out my uh, literalism slash borderline fundamentalism. So, and I, and I had virtually the same experience in college. Mm-hmm. I was at Brown University and I studied under a guy named James Barr mm-hmm. who wrote the book Fundamentalism. Huh? And uh, he was an English uh, Oxford Don who came over to be a visiting professor, and he just systematically, you know, took apart my confidence in the Bible. Right. Um, right. Yes. <laughs> and it was it was really, you know, troubling. Now the the weird thing is, is that I, you know, found Karl Barth and found a way to go back to believing in the Bible, even though it wasn't literally true. Right. And I probably became what you would call a metaphor, metaphoricist, met- yes. metaphoricalist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, you know, I stayed in the ministry, but when I, years later, when I really became an atheist, that was the signal to me to get out of the ministry. Right. Whereas for you, you're in college, you become an atheist and then you go into the ministry. <laughs> Seems crazy. Well, I will yes. say, obviously, there's more to it than the, that. But I, so I, I finished uh, college, and it was pretty, pretty uh, hostile to the church. It was quite, quite funny. I roomed with three people, three guys in an apartment. Uh, all three of them were youth ministers in churches, and I had probably been responsible for at least one of them becoming a, a Christian, <laughs> because I was, I was Mister Christian. Uh, all growing up in high school, you know, I went to Sunday school nine years without missing and helped start a Bible study in high school. So I did. You, did you get a pin? Did you? Oh yes, I had the nine. I had nine nine years of pins. So wow. uh, I did the math. I can't remember what it was. Like four hundred and sixty something consecutive Sundays. Uh, that's a lot of therapy. My, my grand. I inherited my grandfather's <laughs> Sunday school pins. They, they were quite. They were quite impressive. Yes. <laughs> so you know. So yeah. So I mean, I was. I mean, thoroughly, very much like you. Uh, a thoroughly uh, inhabited church, uh, Christian world, uh, conservative evangelical fundamentalist Christian world. When I finished college, I had a good friend who was uh, at the Divinity School at Vanderbilt, and we, we always stayed in touch. And I started reading some of the things that he was reading, and so I got into feminist theology, black theology, James Cone, liberation theology, and I began to realize that there was more to Christianity than kind of the 
the little storyboard version that I was raised with. And that in some ways it was more radical than Nietzsche. And so I started thinking, okay, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something here that, that, because I still felt, uh, and I guess this persists to this day, I still feel uh, Christian in, in, in some way. It's very important to my autobiography. Uh, and that is endured despite the fact that beliefs fell away. And so, you know, I'm, uh, in some ways, the book that I wrote is kind of my version of uh, uh, it's kind of my confessions. It started out as more explicitly <laughs> confessional uh, as to kind of say, well, how is it possible that I, I still identify as religious uh, and particularly Christian? And yet the belief part of it doesn't seem to play a very significant role at all. Uh, no, so I did went you go to, to uh, Candler, which is at Emory University. Uh, we can't switch from uh, Baptist. Okay. Uh, so it was Baptist, then atheist, then Methodist. Uh, and uh, a good <laughs> denomination, if you don't believe in God. Well, they, they, you know, I, I was naive enough to to read their social principles and believe that that's where the church was, because it's actually a very progressive church uh, in its social principles up until you run into the ni- the nineteen seventy two homosexuality debate, where they get very conservative. Um, and so I felt like this is, you know, and I, I got to know some people and I thought, this feels like my tribe to some degree. And uh, I have to say, it's been a very positive experience. They let me be me. Um, and uh, really good people. I have an enormous respect for my colleagues. They're, they get arrested, you know, protesting the situation with immigration, you know. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Their social justice stuff is lovely. But at some point, in them, at some point, in order to become a registered United Methodist minister, right. you've got to sit in front of somebody and tell them that you believe something, don't you? Well, what they ask are questions around um, what does it mean for you to say that Jesus is the Son of God? Um, how, what is your understanding of grace? It's just, you know. Uh, okay. So anyway. Okay. All right. This, th- then, <laughs> that, not, okay. So this is where, like, so all these people tell me I need to, I need to talk to you. I need to look at your book. So I get your book. Okay. And and I, I read your book, and I'm confused as hell by your book. Oh. <laughs> so, um, you know, but if, but then again, I couldn't get Wittgenstein either. So, I, you <laughs> yeah. know, the, the problem may lie with me. It is a weird but, book. But I'll, here, I'll grant you that. <laughs> but but here's here's where here's where I want, like I, I actually want to talk to you about, and I don't even know what to say. Like I don't think I want to talk to you about what you believe because the first part of your book is all about how the belief paradigm is the problem as right. far as you're concerned. Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it seems to me that what you're saying, that there's this line in the first chapter that I, I wrote down. I was like, oh, this is, this is something I didn't. At one point you say, I have been trapped in the cliched, superficial, proposition-based form of Christian religious life in North America for some time. Yes. Okay. I think a lot of us... You know, a lot of the people that listen to my show were trapped in that. Some of them right. might still be. I don't know. Right. But then you say, I have also been familiar with Joseph Heller's Catch-22 for many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was not until a recent reading that I had an insight that provided me with a way out of this propositional religious trap. Right. The insight was that religious claims, as opposed to scientific or ethical claims, should be expressed only as catch 22s because these paradoxes do not make straightforward claims about the world that can be believed or rejected. 
Yes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm right up with you until you say these paradoxes do not make straightforward claims about the world that can be believed. And I go like, that's right. And you go like, or reject it. I go like, oh no, you can reject them. They're easy to reject. <laughs> oh yeah. You can choose to not take them seriously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but in the sense of making a, you know, I think I say elsewhere that, um, I mean, obviously anybody can do anything with any statement. Uh, but at the very least, the catch 22s, uh, I think cause, cause thoughtful readers to pause because it certainly isn't immediately clear what believing or rejecting them would mean. So give me a catch 22. Like, tell me one of the, like one of these paradoxical religious claims that, that you don't want me to believe. Right. But you also don't want me to reject. Well, let's see. I guess we can just take one from the book. Um, well, probably the one of the ones that's had the longest standing uh, impact in my life is the third catch. The only acceptable evidence for religious belief is evidence that is unacceptable, uh, which I find. The only uh, evidence. Only that, acceptable evidence for religious belief is evidence that is unacceptable. And, and what is that evidence that's unacceptable? What is the evidence for religious belief? Anything that somebody uses to justify or rationalize a religious belief. Now, now, now do you mean by that a belief? You right. don't mean, I mean yeah. religious interest. No, no. You I, mean I, like if somebody says, I believe there is a God. Right. And, adhere, and like, here's the reason a belief for that. Paradigm. Whatever the reason they say yeah. uh, is, I, I think that's part of the, the other part of the book is saying you don't have to have a reason to be religious. And it, once you get to that point, then how your religious changes dramatically and you cease to be a threat to people who are differently religious or non-religious. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I think that's uh, much of that, you know, because uh, justifying or rationalizing a religious <laughs> belief is a way, as I use in the book, is a way of establishing a mattress of denial that separates you from the possibility of absolute grief. And the absolute grief is the worst case, the acceptance of the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario, I think I say in there is that life is finite, uh, meaningless, uh, unjust. <laughs> and can you accept that, that 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 may be the way the world is? And then how do you respond to that? And you can respond to that by saying you're religious, or you can respond to that by being an artist of some kind, or you can respond to that by saying I'm an atheist. Uh, and all responses are fine with me. I'm just saying being religious is one such response. Uh, that may help. So now, if you define religion as collectively trying to create meaning in a meaningless universe, right? I go like, okay, I'm with you. Right. But what I sense you're saying in this book is, hey, Christianity, like Christian language, Christian, the Christian paradigm, is a legitimate response too. I think that. Uh, so remember that the book is criticizing the belief paradigm and just about everything that we just about everything that every Christian inhabits in this world today is part of the belief paradigm. So I am saying that there are that there is there are resources to be mined within the Christian narratives and traditions that if we could divorce them from the belief paradigm could help us become this type of courageous compassionate, wise person. As long as the belief paradigm is guiding that conversation, however, you're always going to be concerned about, do I have it right? Right. Am I, am I, <laughs> okay. So w would that be the same as saying, 
once you accept that Les Miserables was a work of Victor Hugo's imagination, mm -hmm. you can mine it for stuff that will really help you to make sense of your own mortality. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I think uh, <laughs> take something as uh, whether you consider it lowbrow or highbrow. Take something like Harry Potter. Uh, I read that to my kids when they when they were young, and I wish to goodness that the Jesus narrative had as much power as the as the part where Harry Potter walks into the woods and says, "I'm ready to die," and he's accompanied by the the ghosts of his family. You know, I, that kind of gets you at that moment. And I, I think because we've elevated Jesus to such a degree that we've turned Jesus into an idol uh, and we can't, th he's, that story has been disempowered by the belief paradigm. Yeah. I am going to have to introduce you to my buddy, Vanessa. All right. Who, uh, yeah, my buddy, Vanessa um, runs this whole thing called Harry Potter as sacred text. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and she and her friends get together and have Harry Potter Bible studies, if you will. Oh yes. Where sure. they read and they're, and they're like, we all know, this isn't true on a literal sense. Mm -hmm. It's a work of imagination. Right. But any, if, if a bunch of us sit around and think about what it means and how to apply it in our own lives and mm -hmm. use it as a jumping off point for conversations about m moral and ethical choices right. and meaning and, and, and mortality, it, it can be amazing. And so, yes. Yes. Absolutely. okay. So, so would it, would it be fair that you're like, listen, do, yeah, do that with Harry Potter. Oh yeah. And, and do that with the Bible too. And don't even worry about whether it's a metaphor, like whether these stories are metaphors for an actual God. Right. Just read it like, just read it like a beautiful story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I wish if we could do that, we would actually elevate the Bible <laughs> and get more out of it uh, than what currently happens with it. I mean, one of my favorite things yeah. in, in the book is uh, talking about, you know, Jesus on the cross calling out and, and, he, and no response. And that that's the, that to me, that that's the human feeling. The human feeling is one of feeling God forsaken. And that, I mean, that's, that's staring absolute grief right in the face. And I can find that in the Jesus story. Uh, so if only, if only we could recapture that kind of sense of the profound which get, uh, the stuff about believing in, you know, and you go, going down the road of atonement and all that kind of stuff absolutely ruins it. Uh, so yeah. Do, do, do you think it's recapturing it or do you think it's like, it's like, it's because I'm trying to think of when there was a time when people talked about Christianity without there being some underlying question. Is it true metaphorically or is it true literally? Without, well, I don't but, know. I mean, that's uh, so that's where I and I, I talk some about this and it's a difficult it's difficult to talk about. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard for us post enlightenment people to imagine what pre enlightenment people thought and did and how they related to the same text and the same words. It's very easy for us to kind of retroactively reinterpret our own hang ups about the correspondence theory of truth into people in in the ancient world. And I just don't know that. I don't know that that's what we should okay, do. Okay, stop, stop, stop. You just said a, a really important phrase. And I want you to define it. The sure. correspondence theory. Well, it's the idea that uh, truth, it's one, it's one theory of truth, and it's the predominant one since the Enlightenment that says something is true if it corresponds with 
a piece of the objective world and the piece of the objective world either verifies or falsifies that statement. Uh, and, and it, it can, can either be it. literally, it can either literally correspond, like, right. you know, I say the word book and you think of a, an object with pages and a cover and front and back cover, right. or right. it can metaphorically uh, right. correspond, yeah. but there still needs to be something out there that it's corresponding to. Yeah. Or otherwise people believe that their language is, is meaningless or gibberish. You know, a sentence is true only if you know what would verify it or falsify it. Um, and, you know, I, I really like that. That sounds like science to me. I love science. I think the, the issue that, I, and I probably should, I wish I'd used this phrase in the book. Um, it's the realization that there is no privileged criteria that tells us that this is the one way that the world should be taken in. And there's no privileged criteria because we have no criteria for establishing the privileged criteria. And that people who are in scientism think, yeah, there is a privileged criteria, and it's primarily the correspondence theory of truth. And anything that doesn't measure up is fictitious or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I, I, what I would say is there may not be one universally and constant privileged one, but when my doctor is opening up my chest to do heart surgery. Absolutely. There is a, priv yes, there is a privileged yeah. way of knowing that I want him to operate on. Right. And, and, you know, and again, like when Martin Scorsese makes a movie about the Irishman. Right. There is an artistic there's a privileged way of knowing that I think is more appropriate for that endeavor. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm, right. I, I don't think it's fixed, but yeah, definitely for different, like for different forms of endeavor, different kinds of thinking are, are most appropriate. Yes. And so I think what you've described there, I believe is what's called con the contextualist theory of truth. And so that, and so, you know, part of my hang up here is that I wish like you probably, <laughs> I wish that religious people would stay out of the science game. Uh, when they try to, try to make science bend to scriptural interpretations or to religious beliefs, you know, that just irritates the stew out of me because it's, it's, it's just crazy. <laughs> um, wait, wait, say that again. It irritates the what out of you? The stew. I'm, I'm not Alabama oh, showing. Oh man, you are it, from Alabama. It irritates the stew out of me. Dad gum. I like that. Um, I like that. <laughs> and so let's just stay out of it. You know, fundamentalism in many ways is a confused, scientifically rational, rational of all things. Uh, approach to Christianity and it is completely misguided and confused and has lost the sense of what, of what religious yeah. language does. See, now so, I know, now I understand why Dan Dennett liked your book. Oh, <laughs> I, well, I watched this Ted talk Dan Dennett gave like 15 years ago and it starts out with him showing this ant that keeps climbing up a, um, a blade of grass to get to the utmost part and then it fall down. It keeps climbing up. And he asked the question, he said, you know, we all know about evolution. What's the evolutionary purpose? What does the ant get out of climbing up that piece of grass and sitting on the highest part of it? Hmm. And, and his answer is the ant gets nothing out of it. Hmm. Um, what's actually happened is a parasite has entered into the ant right. and hijacked, hijacked it. Yes. And, and, and the parasitic virus uses the ant to climb to the top of the, top of the grass because its life cycle depends upon it being ingest, it, it finding its way into the stomach lining of a cow right. or a, um, or another kind of large mammal. And, and, and he says, you know, it, it basically induces in the ant suicidal behavior. Yeah. So, and he says, certain ideas are that way. They get mm -hmm. into our heads and they cause us to do things that aren't good for us. Right. Um, 
But, and, and, and of course, then he likens certain kinds of fundamentalist religions to that Christianity, Islam, Catholicism. Um, right. you know, and, and he points out like, you know, we human beings, we're sometimes when we get an idea in our head, we will subordinate our genetic interest for yes. the idea. We will die for an idea. Yes, absolutely. He said, I want us to study these things in a very, like, don't go like, those ideas are evil. They're trying to kill us. Like, we need to mm. root them out. He's like, just understand how they work. Like, think of them scientifically. Right. And try to understand how they work. Because he says, the real way that you, that you've, that you stop a bad virus is not to annihilate it. That is a fool's game. You will never be able to, like, track it down in every, in every format. But rather is to come up with a mutation of that virus that is benign hmm. that that where you where you eat it and it doesn't kill you or where it gets into you and and it doesn't kill you that, that that's that that's the real goal of virology and i think that what he would say is the reason he probably likes your book is he goes like oh you're taking christianity and you're Re repackaging it and re-understanding it and reframing it in a way that's benign that won't get anybody killed. Possibly so. Yeah, it does feel like a mutation as you <laughs> as you you know, and, I, and it does mean a lot to me. I, I uh, first of all, you telling me that you received these phone calls, uh, but it means a lot to me. I, I did get a, an email from Dan Dennett, uh, which I ought to print off and frame. Uh, because I, yeah, you know, I, I'm, you know, Darwin and science. I mean, I love that stuff. That's and when I'm doing it, it never occurs to me to introduce God into the mix. Um, and at the same time, I've been contacted by somebody who was involved in the Jesus seminar, uh, and that means a lot to me that that person uh, liked the book, or that people like Brian McLaren. Because well, I, I've, see, I've, and I've, I know why Brian likes the book too. And what would you say? Because Brian, <laughs> well, Dan Dennett is on the outside, and he's like, let's make Christianity benign to outsiders. Let's make it so right. that if an outsider looks at Christianity, it won't hurt them. They won't be attracted. They won't be attracted to either believe in it. They won't be attracted to believe in it. They'll only be attracted to look at it and right. to be interested in it and maybe to enjoy it artistically. Right. right. Brian McLaren is sitting inside of Christianity. And, and I think his larger project, if, you know, between you and me and anyone who's listening <laughs> to this podcast, <laughs> I think Brian's real thing is he wants to make Christianity not externally benign, but internally benign. He wants people mm. that are already in Christianity and that there's no way they're leaving for financial or for family or for cultural reasons. Right. He wants, he wants to render it so that it can't hurt them. Hmm. That's an interesting And, and I think he probably looks at, at your catch 22s and says, Hey, if people just started to think of this artistically, if people mm -hmm. just started to look at this in terms of, you know, some, a, a bunch of, a bunch of images and a bunch of ideas that they don't have to decide if they're, that, that their truth or their correspondence isn't even an issue. You don't even think right, about that, right. you know, on some level, I think he would say, well, of course they don't correspond. Um, right. But he would say, oh, then, then, then a person can stay a Christian like John Tucker, mm -hmm. but they become, they're not going to get anybody to believe in original sin. They're not going to get anybody to believe that they are going to burn in hell or that their family members are going to burn in hell for not believing in God. Then right. they're, they're not going to go bombing any abortion clinics um, right. because they're not going to be thinking about, about it that way. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that both of these people see you as 
a cure for virulent Christianity. That's an interesting. I had, I had not thought of it in that way. I do, I do acknowledge. I mean, I almost, <laughs> I almost had a uh, catch to another catch at the uh, at the beginning of the book that just said this book is written for people who are not interested in it, um, because <laughs> because the people who are too interested in it won't get it. Um, but, but I do feel very much like I, you know, I use the tightrope uh, image at, in the at the end of the book, and I do feel very much like I'm walking a tightrope between. Uh, some version of Christianity or, or, or the, in, the internal part that you refer to uh, and the denets of the world. The, uh, and, I, and I find both. I, I really like aspects of both. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, when I was in college, I, when, I, when I learned that Adam and Eve were not historical figures, I can remember I, I shared a room with two other guys and I, I, was, I remember crying in my bed and not wanting them to know that I was crying. And wow. praying, and I used to say I prayed my way all the way to atheism when I was in college, because every, I mean, I, I was so, I had so internalized it, you know, I, my inner dial, my inner narrative, uh, inner monologue was always, always a conversation with God. And it was almost like I just had that conversation right up to the last second, <laughs> and then it stopped. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, I, I really, it's been a powerful force in my life. And I would like to create a way of being Christian that allows people for whom it's still a powerful force, but who cannot buy into some of its or any of its uh, claims yeah. that, are, that are scientific to, to, to say, yeah, I feel good about calling myself a Christian. And I also think there are people, and I, and I, I don't mean you, uh, but I do think there are people who leave it unnecessarily because they only think that it's, tr- it's competing with science. And so uh, I think there's some people who've it, left it who could just stick also, around. It's also freighted with a whole heck of a lot of baggage for a lot of people. It's hurt oh, a yes, lot of absolutely. people. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. That's, that, that's a way of thinking. It's hurt a lot of people. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, like even now, I, if, if, if I see a Sunday, you know, you, you went to Sunday school for nine years. The idea of somebody <laughs> sitting in a room full of children and teaching them about original sin. Oh, right. Yeah, that's. Teaching them about a God who you know, kind of doesn't want to, but he's going to have to kill them forever if they can't accept Jesus Christ as their right. personal Lord and Savior. That's child abuse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would, I, that would not exist in, in a zero theology world. <laughs> now, yeah. now, and, and here's the thing is that I think like, you know, I go like, oh, so you're over there with Pete Rollins and Rob Bell and my friend Jim Burklow and those progressive Christians, like you're people that love Christian language and love hmm. and love Christian traditions but you don't believe any of it is actually connected to the truth. And you're like, no, no, don't say that. We don't believe it. It's that's the wrong paradigm. And I'm like, yeah, it is the wrong paradigm, but like, I got a feeling that you're not really banking on any life beyond this one. Oh, right. Yeah. That just never, uh, yeah. Right. Because again, and to, to my way of thinking, giving up that notion is one way of, of, of having a truly religious response to finitude, mortality, uh, that was a that was a difficult one for me to give up uh, because I was thoroughly entrenched in that in that uh, view, and it probably still it probably still affects me in ways that that require therapy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a nice thought that we would live together in forever utopia with no troubles. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, and so you know, my children have not been raised with that. Uh, so subsequently, they don't yeah, have the same. How old are your kids now? 
How old are you? I have, a, I have a 19-year-old and a 13-year-old. And so what happens to a kid when they grow up in a minister's family, but they know from the, they know from the get-go that their dad, that, 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 that Christianity that they're hearing about is kind of an, an artistic choice rather than a deeply held conviction? Well, they don't. Do, uh, they, do they buy into it? Do they buy into it in any way? Or do they just go like, wow, that's nice for you because Yeah, you're I think maybe that, that's the, they don't buy it. Well, my 19 year old uh, doesn't buy into it as, as a way that she's going to live her life. Um, and my 13 year old, I mean, he's still in the house. So I suppose he has, <laughs> he has a reason to, uh, but you know, he's like, I, I get what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. They both would say that they they share the values and convictions of the Methodist Church here in the Northwest, um, but you know, for them, they just it, it doesn't play a part in their autobiographical narrative in the in the way that it did and does See, mine. That, and that that's why I I mean that's what I think about Brian McLaren, and I guess I'm going to put you in that same category. Hmm. Is I think that there are people that recognize that while Christianity properly understood is not going to attract a lot of new members. Right. There are a whole heck of a lot of people already in the club that need a version of it that they can take with them. Right. With, 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 and that can work for them in the aftermath of science and in the yeah. aftermath of their own experience of kind of not being met by a real God who does anything. Um, yes, and and, and I and I appreciate yeah. I appreciate that, but I, but I think it's like almost a generational thing where I go like, oh, mm. that's that's the transitional form of Christianity, and then later on people will look at it as, you know, sort of like North Norse mythology, which you go like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, it, it's you can learn stuff from it, but like nobody takes it seriously. Possibly so. I can't remember what Dennett Dennett writes in one of his books about it. He, he projects what Christianity might become, and I. And it, it's more of a uh, collection of people. I mean, it, it's probably very similar to your Harry Potter, your person who does the Harry Potter sacred text. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, where we, they could imagine groups forming that way. Um, I'm trying to convert a certain type of religious believer, you know, but. Um, I picked that up. That, there are lots of them. Yeah, I, so, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Unfortunately, they're not likely to pick up this book. Right. Yeah. Um, that's why I said this book is meant for those who won't read it. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, you know who might pick up this book is deconverting pastors. Possibly. I know you're, I know you're connected with the clergy project and I think there may be some people who are in pulpits and they're not in a position to leave those pulpits, No. but this might show them a way to stay in those pulpits with, if not complete transparency, at least with some kind of internal integrity and to kind of organize what they're doing. It could be. I mean, I, I actually don't have any connection to the clergy project. Um, I, I know Linda because I participated in some of those early early studies that she and Dennett did uh, about supernatural, not holding supernatural beliefs. Um, but the clergy project, which I think is a wonderful thing for people who find themselves in that position, but it completely participates in the belief paradigm. Uh, and so in, to be a part of it, you have to declare your participation in that paradigm and your rejection of those beliefs. <laughs> So it's I, I I couldn't I couldn't participate in that, but um, but yeah, because you because you, you can't you can't like if somebody said to you, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? You're not even going to answer that question. If they're asking me, uh, well, it's kind of like when I go down through the book, I mentioned several of these kinds of things. 
I'm not sure that I understand the context where the answer to that is, yes, I do, um, or no, I don't. Uh, I've spent my life being very unhappy with both responses. And if I'm with one group of people, I feel, I really feel like a person without a tribe, to be honest. I, I've been going recently to some atheist gatherings, and I go, and I don't belong. And um, Now, you should I, you come know, to my I don't, gatherings. I don't, I don't you should find, come to mine. Uh, yeah, well, yours are probably really good. <laughs> Uh, well, no, no, because yeah. m- because mine don't want to do a belief paradigm either. Right. But we do start with the, like like right. the great thing about going to church for me was just like you were saying earlier in your thing, mm-hmm. you were saying we didn't talk about belief where I was growing up because it was taken for granted. Right. Well, in my community, we don't talk about non-belief because it's taken for granted. Right. What we talk about is how do you make meaning in, in as a mortal human being in this world? How do you how do you find how do you develop loving relationships how do you how do you make a difference in the lives of other people how do you become part of something bigger than yourself how, you know and, and i feel like that's when i was reading your book it felt like that's the stuff you really want to talk about but like yeah if you go to an atheist club they're right. gonna they want to talk about what they don't believe right yeah well they were they didn't even, this one didn't even do that i was just i would have been happier if they did that it was just kind of I, I, if if you hadn't told me i was at an atheist group i could have been at a church coffee i mean it, it, the, the church people don't talk about religion and the atheist people didn't talk about their atheism it was just what what do you what have you done this past week um but i do want to say one thing that i think is important and it's it's taken me a while to and i probably still haven't got it totally figured out um that you know underlying much of wittgenstein's philosophy is the notion that the the meanings of words comes down to how they are used and I think much of what I encounter with both fundamentalist, not not metaphoricist, but uh, uh, but literalist, and also with atheist, is this notion that when I say the word God, the meaning of that word uh, must be some, there's some type of interior pointing that I'm doing in my mind, and uh, and that's what gives that word meaning. And I don't think that's true, and I, I don't think that's what Wittgenstein would say. How about chair? How about chair? When I say chair, does, am I pointing to something in my mind? When you said, what did you say? If I'm I sorry. said chair. Oh, the person? Chair. <laughs> no, no. If I say like I'm sitting on a chair. Oh, a chair. I thought you said share. Um. <laughs> no, no. Uh, or share. Share is also, we could point to her as well. You can point to share. Yes. Uh, but but well, like, if I say chair, that's where Wittgenstein says like language or whatever. Like, does that not, d- d- that the language is intelligible because we all have a more or less concept of what a chair is. We all have an agreement that we participate in. And then there are objects like chairs that certainly do participate in kind of a referential thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that the meaning of the word, though, is an interior act because you, you learned that in a social community. Right. I, I learned I learned God in a social community. That's right. And so I think what Wittgenstein would say is. And, and other philosophers since is think about the ways that you learned about God that differ from the ways that you learned about chairs and books, because you didn't mm-hmm. learn it the same way. In, in my environment, you did. In my environment, you did. Well, you learned it the to, same way. To what did they point? They, they said, they said, listen, you know, in the same way that, um, that I can't show you the wind, but I can, I can tell you what it is because you can feel it and you can see its effect in the world. God, like you came from God. This is God lifted Jesus from the dead. This is this is this is how it works. It's a fact. Yeah, I understand. I understand that. But I think that, that I, what I'm hearing you describe is not the way people learn how to use chairs 
and books. I, I think much of what, if, if you're raised in a religious family, like I, we were, um, we had already imbibed God talk before anybody taught us anything. It was in the way that we lived, the way our families lived. It was the form of life in which, you know, it, 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 was, the, it was the water in which we swam. Uh, so was chairs. Yes, but you learn, you learn vocabulary words, you know, when you go to school. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. think, I, I just don't think you learn, you learn, you don't learn all words the same way. And I think God is one of those words like justice or truth that you have to learn in different kinds of ways uh, than material objects and things like that. So, you know, uh, I do discuss a little bit of this in the book. It's a very, it's a very difficult section about um, uh, the beetle in the box thought experiment, the uh, versus the elephant in the room. Uh and that's that's Wittgenstein talking. The Beetle in the Box thought experiment is Wittgenstein arguing against the possibility of private meanings, private language. Um, and I, and so it, it, I admit that it is it is a complicated t- topic. <laughs> I'll be happily I would happily admit to that. Um, but I don't think that you learn the word God. I, I just can't imagine that you learn the word God by pointing, because that would be idolatry, right? If you can point to it, then it's not God. Yeah, w- w- since when did since when did Christians not practice idolatry? <laughs> well, that's well, they do that. That's true, but at least they know that they're not supposed to. At least in in the at least the way I was raised, anything. Yeah, I mean, the, you, you know? weren't supposed to make a physical <laughs> representation, but then they right. would describe a personality. I mean, literally, we used to wear these bracelets that said, "What would Jesus do?" Because like you could know that. You couldn't know what his face looked like, but you could definitely like it, he was almost like an Internet friend where you could you didn't know what he looked yeah. like, but you knew what he thought <laughs> right. about everything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I, that even adds another dimension to it, though. I mean, we learned about Jesus. I mean, we also learn about God as a character in a book. We learn about Jesus as a character in a book. And so that also plays a role um, that differs from how you learn to use basic vocabulary, I think. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to me because like I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why you don't, except for the economics of it all, I don't figure out why you don't become a straight up humanist like me. Uh, cause I still, I, cause I still like w- one of the things I like about your book mm-hmm. and one of the, re- is, is that I tell all my secular friends, like, listen, you have got to identify forms of Christianity that you think are better and worse. And you need to encourage the better forms of Christianity, right. the Brian McLaren types, over and against the Franklin Graham types, right. um, that there's a sense in which we have a we have a vested interest in people who are going to cling to Christianity, mm-hmm. clinging to a form that makes them good human beings, right? And and so I, I love the idea of hey, here's a way of thinking about Christianity that enables you to still, you know be a good scientist and, and enables you to still be a good person and, and enables you to not think of people that don't believe what you believe as, as doomed to hell, literally. Like, I think it's beautiful, but I don't understand why you have to, why I don't understand why when the clergy project says, Hey, you don't like, we all know what the representation God means in American society. You don't subscribe to that. Do you? I don't know why you can't say yes. Well, I say, I'm not sure that we all know what the representation of God means. I think that's that's the issue. I, I think that's an, a big assumption that everybody means the same thing when they use the word God or it has a general idea. I, I don't I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, I think if you look at the way people use the word, I think I, I have a 
an idea for a second book that looks into this stuff. If you look at the times and places people use the word, the, the context in which they use the word, and that and, and, and meaning is usage, then you stop asking the question, well, what did you mean in your mind when you said that? Um, that's, that's the false question. Right, but see, that's what I'm saying. Meaning is usage. And what I'm saying is like usage, there's a bell curve. And, and most people use the word God in a very, very similar way. I don't know. I think it's an easy, how would, how would we, so let me just imagine, how would we, how would we confirm or falsify that claim? Oh, screw you. I, you don't, don't try to be scientific <laughs> with me. No, like, I think, I think we would interview 10,000 people and we would ask them questions about God that would be very similar to the questions we would ask them about George Clooney. You know, do you and believe- I think, I think that, okay, so part of that though, it's, so sometimes questions introduce the belief paradigm or parts of it in ways that invite answers. So sometimes questions are wrong questions. Uh, and so we have to be careful about that even, um, I don't know. I mean, I just look around and I see, I see, you know, hundreds of different denominations. I see disagreements within denominations and when my, within my Methodist denomination, uh, sometimes Me God too. refers Me to a, refers to an obedient, something it refers to a divine being to whom we owe obedience. Sometimes it refers to, sometimes the word God is simply a synonym for love and justice uh, I just see a great variety of uses of the word. Yeah, I, I, and I, I see two. I see that great variety breaking into two categories, and they're the ones you gave me. There are people that see God as a lit, in a literal way, and they will argue over what kind of person he is, but mm -hmm. he is a person. And then there are people right. that see God in a metaphorical way, and they will argue about what the nature of the love that the word God refers to right. is, and whether that means we let immigrants in or we don't let immigrants in. Right. But right. but but they still but they they're still like yeah, but it, it ain't a person. Trust me. There's no there's no magic man up there who's going to like make your life work. And and, yeah. and and so you know so for for me that like I, I see those two broad categories. And I go like there's a lot of disagreement in each of those broad camps. Right. But they're both in the belief paradigm. They both believe that there is some objective reality to which God refers. And I, yeah, and if we go and I, if we go using the belief paradigms criteria and analyzing their what they tell us, then we will find results consistent with the belief paradigm. If we don't go with that criteria and we just look at how people behave and use the words when they use the words, I think we're going to see a lot more variety. So, I mean, again, it's the privileged criteria. Why is the correspondence theory the privileged criteria when discussing religious matters? Because that's what everybody uses. And, and I'm not sure that's true. Except this one guy who's coming with this cool book trying to <laughs> kind of convert everybody out of that paradigm and saying, like, I've, I found uh, a way out. Like, I can show you the way out of this paradigm. Uh, what are you? It, I, some, something tells me that if I come there to Oregon, uh -huh. you're going to be using a Betamax video recorder on your, on your thing. It's so like, look, why is this is a, this is also a paradigm. This is also a, a replay thing. Like what, right. where do we, you know, and, and, and you'll say like, why isn't this just as legitimate? And I'll say it is just as legitimate. It was just, it was better than the VHS. It's just that nobody used it. Everybody used the VHS. So the VHS got privileged and Blockbuster right. was a VHS store. Right. And yet, here I sit, completely uh, secular, progressive, committed to the same things you are, and I still identify as religious, you know. And so, 
is it just that you is it just that you think I should you would like to see me drop certain words? I I would like to see you, uh, you know, and 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 John, you seem like a lovely person, and you've <laughs> you've you, you, you've had. I just happen to know. I just happen to know that there are loads of people out there that are looking for a religion, a way of making sense of their own mortality and their own finitude. Right. That is outside of the belief paradigm, be not because it says the belief paradigm is wrong, but because it goes, there's actually nothing to believe. There's no God to believe in. And so like, right. they're like, show me how to live my life when I, when I don't believe in God. And I think that a person like you could be incredibly useful to those people. If you would say, if you would wave your hand and say, I too don't believe in God, but a, I found a way to still mine Christianity for all sorts of cool stuff right? and to be on good terms with Christians. And I, I will, I, I look grief right in the face and, right. and I do it as a secular person. And like, I think about your daughter and I go like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not surprising to me. It's just like, look, I, like all that language and that stuff. But like at some point in her life, when she runs into something or when she has children and wants to raise them up in a community or something like this, she's going to be like, could you find me a community, please, dad, hmm. that doesn't require me even to play or, like to do all this Wittgensteinian sophistry around these words. Like, I understand why you had to do that because you went to Samford. But like, could you just give me something that's like a little bit more simple? And that's why that's right. that's why I sort of like covet you for 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 humanism because I feel like you'd be <laughs> you'd be a fabulous humanist community builder. Well, and I'm not sure that you know I, I think zero theology actually does what you're talking about. It asks it gives people a way of being of be, making meaning uh, without belief. I I think it does exactly that. And you know, as I say, part of what I'm trying to do here is okay. But wait, stop, it, stop. Yeah. Sure. I'm just going to hold you that. Okay. Making meaning without belief. There's a part of me that like goes okay. like, God, can I cut the tape right here? <laughs> I got it. I got him. <laughs> well, he would also be making meaning without disbelief in the correspondence theory. So, I mean, that's that. I mean, damn it. Part of what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm unhappy with uh, some of the assumptions of modernity. And I would like for us to recapture a way of looking at the world through stained glass windows. So I guess I am saying, look, if you're happy in the correspondence theory of truth and you don't need religion, I got nothing for you. You're great. Go be. But there are other ways of living one's life that uh, tap that may play closer to the artistic expression uh, that may be available to many as well. And so that's what I that's what I do. Um, you know, and I just, I, uh, Hey, I'm curious. I'm curious because mm -hmm. I've got a stained glass window in the front of my house. You got a stained glass in your house? Not in my house. No. <laughs> because that, because that, that, that's one of your big metaphors in the book is this idea right. that scientific thinking sort of is about clear glass. Like I just want to see what's on the other side in, in as accurate a way as possible. And right. that stained glass is about having the process by which you look at things be part of the, the, the product or the part of the process, like, like, like letting, letting the glass do its thing too, letting the, letting the lens do its thing. And I think you would probably say that Christianity is like a big complicated stained glass window 
that there's not just truth in what's on the other side of it. There's truth in it. There, there's something beautiful about that way of looking at things. Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, these are analogies, of course, and so there are limits to them. But yeah, I think uh, I'm just trying to say that uh, there is a different way of looking at the world and looking at humanity. Uh, I think it comes partly, what I express in the book is that it's, it's appreciating the tragic uh, condition of human life, um, responding to that tragic condition with love and compassion um, and a sense of wisdom um, that doesn't uh, that doesn't always measure everything by clear glass criteria, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. Um, that's the life that I find myself living. Um, but yeah, I mean, I knew when yeah. I wrote it that the two groups that were going to probably like it the least would be atheists and uh, hardcore believers, uh, and that's I kind of expected that, but. Well, Anyhow, you know, that's... evidently you're evidently you're otherwise gainfully employed. So uh, I'm not going to feel too <laughs> sorry for you. Hey, listen, it is it, it has been good to talk with you. Um, I appreciate. Yeah, this. absolutely. Yeah. And I know I know you. When is, is is this book already out there? Yes, it is. It's on Amazon, and uh, yeah, that's probably the main place to find it. It's okay. So yeah, and uh, I, I look forward to having these kinds of conversations. I, I would love to have a conversation with. Brian McLaren and some of these other folks that you mentioned. So <laughs> it would be, it would be interesting. Yeah. So, well, listen, I, 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 I good luck with the book. Well, thank I mean, you. I hope that it does draw you into some conversation and, you know, if you ever get exhausted out there, <laughs> exhausted of Wit Wittgenstein, <laughs> exhausted of it all, come back to humanize me and we will, we will show you, uh, we will show you another way. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's good talking to you. And I, I appreciate, I'm, as much as I appreciate your, your, your book, I, I appreciate your life. I appreciate what you're doing with yourself. Well, thank you. And, and I appreciate what you're doing too. This is a, I, I love this. Uh, I haven't listened to all the episodes, but I've seen the category, the topics. I, I think it's fantastic. Hey, so good. Keep it up. All right. Do you see why that was relevant? Do you see why I wanted to have that conversation and share it with you? Do I make sense? If I don't, it's time for you to write to me. You know where to find me, barkimpolo.org, humanizemepodcast.com. I am easy to find and I love to hear from you about what you think about the stuff we're doing on the show. But that conversation was interesting to me and I did not win every point. Damn it. But I felt like I talked to another human being and I got to know a little bit about where he was coming from. And I shared a little bit about where I was coming from. And to me, that's a good conversation if people are listening and people are sharing. All right. I hope you have some good conversations this week. And I will look for you next time on Yes, That's Right, your favorite podcast and mine humanize me. See ya. Have a great week. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. 
You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living now. Oh